Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this special episode. We're really pleased to be joined by a guest. Uh, unfortunately, Tom's not with us today. Tom had some things that took him away, but uh, our guest will, I'm sure, fill his chair admirably. But anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor at Silver Church in the Pacific Northwest. I've done a number of things, including teach philosophy and invest in real estate and written some books. Anyway, that's enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, a retired history professor, and a few other things. And we are joined today by a, another professor at New St. Andrews College. Mitch, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Mitch Stokes. I'm a senior fellow of philosophy at New St. Andrews College here in uh, Moscow, Idaho. Uh, I, I teach philosophy, but I also teach mathematics and uh, physics and hermeneutics and all kinds of things, often at the same time. I used to be, uh, before I studied philosophy, I um, was also, I was an engineer prior to that. That's a fascinating combination. And actually, we're going to get into that a little bit today. Uh, for a lot of folks, they don't put together, you know, philosophy and engineering. Uh, the STEM sort of fields at all with philosophy, although that's somewhat ironic. And we were talking about that before we started rolling the camera. If we remember the academy, what was the, the, the sign that was over the entrance? It said, if you don't know geometry, don't bother coming in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you kind of riff on that a little bit, Mitch? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's funny going from, going from engineering to philosophy, you know, I, I mean, it, particularly when I was first telling people that I was doing that and I was making that sort of career choice, you know, the blank stare, it was, it was just amazing, you know, it, it was, it, but when I explained that I was doing it because the money's better than philosophy, that they'll <laughs> make perfect sense. They're like, oh, okay. Everybody but, knows that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. So was it, were there blank stares on both sides? Uh, you know, <laughs> No, I actually it wasn't. It was actually it was having having the um, engineering background was actually an advantage for um, I think philosophy in in, in some respects because uh, you know having that having that background uh, it's it's a I, this sounds bad. I mean it's it's easier to I think learn the philosophy after going through the math and physics than vice versa. And it might be just because you're energetic and you, you know, I mean, like it, it requires a lot of motivation to put yourself through some of the, you know, that kind of um, STEM education right. after the, unless you have a really, really good. Um, so I, I, I think it was, I, I think too, um, there's been a general trend and I, I think I hit it at the right time that, people are seeing that this kind of siloing of yeah. disciplines is a bad thing. I mean, it's not new. I mean, we, you go back to um, like C.P. Snow has this famous. Yeah, I was thinking about him. Yeah, yeah. You know, bridging the two cultures kind of thing, the yeah. sciences and the humanities. I think, was that back in the 50s? I, but Something it, like lament, that. lamenting that. And so, so people have seen that. And, and even further, you look at, you know, if you start look, looking at, say, some of the things that like Einstein and Heisenberg and some of those scientists yeah. 
the visionaries were saying, you can see that, wow, there's a lot of philosophy going on. And they realized it. They, you know, that was one of the things that they were cognizant, they were aware of. Um, yeah, I think about Wittgenstein, for example. Yeah. And, you know, analytic philosophy, which seems to, uh, you know, I think be maybe some common ground. Um, you know, it's a pretty, you know, rigorous um, approach to philosophy. We think about someone like Alvin Plantinga, you know, yeah. that kind of that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe right. the more, I guess, sort of uh, approach to philosophy is more set, sort of centered in the traditional humanities maybe is where you, the leap is more difficult. Yeah, well, the, and it's funny, the, the, the analytic tradition, you, you mentioned that. I mean, that really started, you know, one of the, there are these two different strains in philosophy, and they both kind of came out of a response or an inter, a reaction to Immanuel Kant. Um, you know, you have this continental versus analytic, or whatever, and yeah. those are rough, and you shouldn't be one or the other. You should kind of be somewhere in the middle. Um, but the, the analytic side was actually you know, a lot of it came out of philosophers and mathematicians like Golub Frege in the 1800s. So it actually came out of this rise of logic trying to philosophically understand what's going on in mathematics and look at the foundations yeah. of mathematics. Yeah. So it really is this mathematical discipline. But what's what's interesting, and this kind of gets back to what we were, you know, what you originally brought up is that that's not a unique idea. That actually goes all the way back to Plato. Mm -hmm. You know, this emphasis on mathematics and using it as, or at least seeing it as important and a kind of, um, you know, not just a paradigmatic example of knowledge, let's say like, Hey, look, what, what do we know? Well, what do we really know? Well, we know, we know two plus two is equal to four. Let's start with something easy. It wasn't just that it was thinking that the world was fundamentally mathematical and there was something about the content that was important. And so I think that that analytic continental tradition, well, even, even some of the continental guys, I think maybe even Heidegger and some of the Husserl, you know, had mathematical backgrounds. They, they, they started out in mathematics. And so, yeah. it, it, and I think people misunderstand that. They think, wow, doing math and doing philosophy have got to be the two furthest things from each other. And I think that's because we, un we misunderstand yeah, kind of what yeah. they, the issues and what they meant by mathematics. Yeah. Glenn, you were saying well, something. You, you can actually go back before Plato. The, the pre-Socratics were very much into math. Pythagoras, right. um, you know, we know him because of his geometry, but he was an incredibly important philosopher and probably the most religious of the pre-Socratics. Yeah, you know, kind he, of funky he, dude, too. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, you can look at that. You can look at someone like, um, more recently, someone like, well, recently, this is uh, the historian speaking, someone like Kepler, uh, who who is going to see a direct connection between math, the structure of the universe, and the mind of God. Yeah. Um, even earlier, someone like Bacon, um, uh, Roger Bacon, that is not Francis, uh, Roger Bacon, or just before him, Robert Grosstest, believed that mathematics was the language of science, what we would call science. They would have said natural philosophy. Right. So there, and again, natural philosophy. Right. So this connection ha has been there and really only started dividing in the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I wonder, I, you know, and I, the, you mentioned Pythagoras, that's what, you know, as far as we can tell, that's 
Plato, you know, we typically think that Plato was, you know, Socrates is his teacher, and that's true in, in, in an important sense. But he was also trained by these Pythagoreans, and yeah. so much of his main, some of his main ideas, everything from, you know, his idea of the soul and the the mathematical cause, all of that, so much comes from Pythagoras. We t- and like you say, it's it's a shame that we kind of know Pythagoras just as the Pythagorean theorem, mm-hmm. and when it really is kind of Plato was this card carrying Pythagorean, and you know, in the Republic, he's very, he's he's explicit about that and in the Timaeus, you know, I mean, it's all this Pythagorean idea. And so it, it, yeah, it really is at the very foundation of Western um, philosophy. Yeah. When you think about Pythagoras, you know, I think of a, you know, this kind of funky mystic, but I also think about this guy who really had a genuine insight into the nature of reality. Uh, He, he has a kind of a tinfoil hat kind of personality though. (laughs) <laughs> because he sees all these associate uh, these correspondences yeah, absolutely okay. yeah yeah no and that's what that's that's one of the things that that we in one in one of the classes I teach at NSA is that we we kind of try to highlight that because you know insofar as we know about Pythagoras we certainly know about Pythagoreans and what they thought and how you know some of it just sounds loony you know, you're thinking, okay, exactly, where's the tinfoil hat? And you go, okay, <laughs> wait a second, this guy has both these amazing insights that end up becoming so foundational to the West and to physics, contemporary, I mean, all, and yet he's also kind of wild. And I want the students to see, okay, tell me where that dividing line is between crazy, you know, and genius and insightful. And sometimes that's not clear. And I'll show them something like a, um, we just went through this. There's a there was a uh, uh, discovery in the '60s. The, the guy Murray Gelman, a physicist, he came up with the idea of quarks. One of the people that came up with the idea of quarks got a Nobel Prize for it. But he makes this discovery of a new particle by looking at kind of these symmetries that end up. You can actually draw them out, and it looks like if you've seen the Pythagorean tetractus that has these, it's like ten dots and you know a triangle with with four dots on each side, and it is, and it's very central to Pythagoreanism. And it turns out that Gelman, I don't know if he knew this, he's using the tetractus to find this new particle, and you go, okay, that doesn't seem very scientific. Yeah, right. you know, and, and so you, I mean, and obviously he wasn't just divining it and he didn't have a, you know, this, the, he had mathematics and all of that going behind it, but that doesn't just because there's mathematics behind it, we tend to think, oh, well that legitimizes it and makes it a scientific and not create, there's magic going on there, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's really like, amazing. Well, you think about, is it Newton who was into alchemy? I mean, and yeah, you know, he's like, you know, and then writing commentaries on the book Revelation and yeah. <laughs> doing all yeah, kinds of well, stuff. And you you can go back to Copernicus, who was a committed Pythagorean Christian, and uh, Kepler, who was really the last great Pythagorean. I mean, you know, all of the early scientists are influenced by this. This is really yeah, shaping how they think. And, and like you say, they're explicit about, it. you know, Kepler is like, hey, look, you know, I mean, and then, you know, Copern- the Copernican view, you know, even Galileo talks about that. They called it the Pythagorean view sometimes, you know, I mean, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there were, there is funny, one thing, um, I think Heisenberg actually 
there's some, you mentioned somewhere that, um, I don't know if he mentions Pythagoreanism, but he mentions Platonism. And he says, yeah, history has um, basically voted in favor of Plato. You know, the world, <laughs> sure. mathematics and the world yeah. of the subatomic realm are basically just forms. Well, that's it. You know, I have a friend who teaches mathematics at, at uh, Wheaton College and just we had dinner one day, day and I said, you know, what is it? Are you are you Platonist? He says, of course. <laughs> you know, it's just we, we're, we're dealing with fundamental structures of reality. Either this is all a human construct or we really have a genuine insight into the fundamental structure of reality. And it's pretty weird to maintain that mathematics is just a coincidence that every <laughs> the things that we do with mathematics just has this coincidental relationship to the physical yeah. world you know? right absolutely yeah well and yet you need to take it a step further it's not just the physical world it's the structure of the human mind as well we're yeah. not we're not just dealing with you know equals mc squared mathematics science that kind of thing where it actually has an important effect on the structure of human consciousness as well yeah. Even though we don't normally think of it that way, I wonder that, how that, much. Is that, that's interesting. I because I, I consciousness is something that I I I know very little about. But can you say more about that? The how the math or the Platonism is related to the consciousness. Well, um, well, first of all, as a Christian Platonist, I'm going to have to go there. Um, <laughs> but but along with that. Um, you know, mathematics is a product of the human, in its simplest terms, simplest way of illustrating this, is mathematics is a product of the human mind. You know, we develop mathematics and then suddenly discover that actually this stuff is the way the world really works. Yeah, okay. That says yeah. that there's a connection between the way the mind works and the way the universe really? works. Right. And the, the intermediary is mathematics. Yeah, isn't the illustration that Plato uses in the Mino a mathematical illustration of like recollection? You know, remember he brings up the slave boy, asks him a series of leading questions, geometric questions, and right. all the kid knows is yes, no, you know, and and then you know Plato says, well, there you go. Oh, actually, it's Socrates, of course, in the, in the dialogue, yeah. but Socrates said, there you go. Uh, he knows it. You know, even though he's an uneducated slave boy, he he gets it. So, in other words, there's a sense in which we're kind of born with the cheat sheet. <laughs> you know, remember yeah. remember the back of the book when you were in high school. You know, you'd see all the answers to the quizzes in the front of the book, and they're all in the back. There's a sense in which it's all kind of in there. And this is where things get really freaky. You know, this is where people think of start. You know, well, Plato did this. You know, he speculated about reincarnation. You know, is that the way it works? But that's a, there's kind of an infinite regress somewhere. You got to start. You know, <laughs> and and I think that the Christian uh, proposition that we're made in the image of God uh, gets at the core of that. There's some sense in which, you know, our our you know the, the logos is somehow right. uh, inhabiting us. Uh, yeah, it reflects yeah, no, the larger cosmos. Yeah. And, and 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 I think you know, going back to connecting what both of you are saying, like with Kepler this notion of how the mind, you know, the, there's a connection between the mind and the, and the cosmos, you know, and maybe someone can give an evolutionary story. I'd, I have not but, been able but, to find anybody who can, but, but let's, let's yeah. just say, but, but that connection is something that is, we tend to take for granted and it's really absolutely remarkable. And this notion of, um, yeah, the, 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 
the mind, like even someone like Roger Penrose, who's this mathematician at Oxford, you know, has this kind of, you know, cosmos mind, Platonistic world, you know, he's a, yeah. a Platonist. And so it's like, there's, they're connected. Yeah. I remember it was a Nagel, uh, mind and cosmos that yes. book, uh, came out a few years ago. Um, now, you know, this, this drove Pythagoras in the direction of mysticism, right? You know, he, he's kind of this mystical mathematician, which is funky to think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, th I think that Unless just... you know something about medieval occult theories, in well, which case mathematical mysticism makes perfect sense. But I think that though for the popular mind, though, today, I think we're more uh, sort of our expectations have been formed by positivism. You know, this idea mm -hmm. that right. we're just dealing with, uh, you know, uh, material reality when we're talking about math. Uh, like, on a th you know, sometimes you run across people who make, an, I think, an important distinction between qualitative and quant quantitative reasoning. Uh, the, you know, the qualitative, it has to do with value, the, you know, axiology, the, the quantitative has to do with surfaces, uh, things that can be measured, extension, you know, that kind of stuff. you have any thoughts on that? Uh, how, how maybe that's a good way to approach things, not a good way to think about it. I mean, it seems as though it feeds into snow's two culture thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I think going back to what Glenn was saying, like, the, I think you're so Chris, on the one hand, I think it is surprising that there's this connection between mathematics and mysticism. And then Glenn, I think on the other hand, it's like, well, looking at the history, you see that it's not surprising at all, you know, going back to, and I think you start seeing that with, um, you know, it wasn't just starting with Einstein, you have Maxwell, you know, was very much, you know, he wrote poetry and was all, but his idea that might, you know, he's this Christian who, yeah, God designed all this and I'm looking at the mathematical world and there's this connection and he waxed eloquently about it all. And, um, but then you, you do have this kind of the difference between like kind of mysticism versus a Christianity. I mean, I know there's Christian mystic, but what, if you don't have that idea of a divine designer, probably behind, you've got to have some explanation. And that does lead people, I think, automatically to start like something's going on here. Yeah, it's right. more, more right. than meets the eye. And then you start, and, and then you have people that are taking, you know, you have like the Tao of physics, you know, or something like that, that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, phys a lot of mainstream physicists just go, Oh my gosh, that's terrible. I mean, I don't, I've never, no. you know, but bringing in this kind of Eastern mysticism that even Bohr had, you know, yeah. this like both and yin and yang and you, but weird stuff is going on and it's, not just at like a surfacey level, it's ultimate reality for them. You know, this, what everything's made out of is bizarre and kind of this one hand clapping sort of thing for them. Yeah. And yeah. so you kind of, I, I think it's natural for people to, you got to have some answer. Yeah. I've heard, you know, quantum physics described as sort of making room for free will uh, in a way that, maybe the mechanistic approach that preceded it didn't seem to have space for. And then also the idea that, that reality as we experience is, it is almost, uh, perpetually, uh, you know, you know, sort of the, the 
the universe or the cosmos emerging out of nothing kind of on an ongoing basis. There's just kind of, uh, I think it was Nate Wilson who talked in those terms one time and I wasn't mm-hmm. really taken by it. Um, of course I'm not a scientist and I'm assuming that, uh, Nate, uh, isn't either, <laughs> but it, it, there is this sort of, uh, mysterious sort of sub, uh, you know, this world of subatomic particles that just uh, doesn't seem to behave at all like the commonsensical observed world that we live in, uh, which seems to open up kind of this space for, you know, mystical ways of thinking. Yeah. And I, it, well, in, in, in just knowing that the world is a lot spookier. And so I think it, it does create space for all this spookiness, however it gets filled, but for someone to say, well, yeah, I don't think that, um, I don't think that God would do X. Like you, you kind of, now it's kind of hard to, I mean, I totally get it and I totally get where some people are coming from, but there's also an aspect of, I don't know, I'd be really careful about saying what God can yeah. do or what he would or wouldn't do. Cause I don't even know what an electron is, you know? I mean, so I, so in that sense, it's not that I'm saying that there's an argument for God because it's a mystery. I'm just saying we should probably, I, I think there should be a humility of, you know, I'm really not sure what it, it is going on. Like, it, it, and I think that's helped me a lot as a Christian when I you know, think about it, well, how, you know, I have all kinds of questions too. Like, you know, how I'm praying to God, how does he know my thoughts? You know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You know, they talk about consciousness and mental entities and how does he, you know, there's a, what's his relationship to time? If I'm praying to him, how does he, he's hearing me, but he's hearing all these other people at the same time. And I have, you know, I mean, from questions like that to all, how do you make sense of this, that, or the other? I do find that the more I learn about physics and the way the world seems to be working, it's made me kind of cool my jets on some of those. It, it It's helped me at least have a little bit of patience with those yeah. and just go, okay. Like we, we, we necessarily have to uh, be satisfied with a kind of provisional knowledge because you know, just take a look at the recent discoveries that this uh, space telescope has, uh, you know, uh, you know, brought to us. Uh, whoops. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we were pretty confident, you know, just before these photographs uh, came came in that we understood things. Um, I think we're going to have to rework all the textbooks now. But that just keeps happening over the course of my life. That's happened, you know, a dozen times. And so you know, I, it doesn't shake my faith in the value of the scientific enterprise, but it does certainly qualify in my mind, uh, any given set of findings in any given time. There's something that, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. In other words, we, 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 we don't have all the data and, and is it even conceivable that we ever would? Right. Yeah. And, and, and that, that, that's, that's certainly the case. And, and I, for me, even the stuff that we seem to know, it's not going to get any, I would imagine, I don't know this. It it seems like it's not going to get any less crazy. You know, the more we discover about the universe, it's probably not going to get, we're probably going to be more and more surprised, but it's at least this surprising and bizarre. Um, And so if the, if the, something like, you know, 
desks or tables, what's going on and making them possible is so bizarre that it's hard to really, you know, it's like, it's not just mostly space. There's a sense in which if these things are infinitely small and the mass is what, you know, we mass is generated from energy. Like it's almost all space, you know, it's like, yeah. It, yeah. It, it all, it seems like it's a magical world and you go, okay, at the very least, if tables are this complicated and hard to, why am I surprised that God is, why I don't understand what God's plan is sometimes. Yeah. It takes me back to Buckaroo Banzai back in the eighties. I don't remember, you know, if you remember that film, I remember the movie I never saw it, but I remember the title. <laughs> and the eighth dimension. That was, that was basically the premise of the film is that we're, we're surrounded by things that appear to be solid, but are actually, uh, hardly there. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there, and then there are creatures moving between dimensions. Anyway, right, anyways, right, right, right. Yeah, it's fun. You'd, you'd enjoy it. It's, but it's, it's pretty bizarre as well, <laughs> you know, yes. uh, get, getting to, um, kind of the prejudices that we have, uh, it's just, you know, when we think about conventional wisdom in society, uh, it's almost as though it's stuck in like the 19th century. It's, 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 you know, the sort of the, the man in the street understanding of what science does and what philosophy does. Uh, it's, it's really, um, way behind when, it, you know, when it comes to, what they actually are. I, I remember when I was uh, testing in for a graduate program and we got back the results and it was, it was fun to see also kind of disturbing how the, because it was a standard test that all graduate students were taking. I can't remember the name of it, but all, every discipline took the same test. Right. So uh, the two disciplines that came out on top in the humanities, it was, was philosophy and in uh, the sciences, it was physics and the scores were, almost identical in terms of, you know, how the students who were applying to get into doctoral programs in these two disciplines scored. The, the discouraging thing was education was so far back. <laughs> it, it was like the rock bottom. These are the people we trust our kids. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, um, you know, I, I do think that the, you know, sort of the first rate philosophers and the first, first rate physicists I've known dabble in the other side. You know, there, there's, there's an interest in what's going on on the other side of the divide. If we stick to snows, two cultures. Yeah. Um, and, and, and partly I think it's because we're dealing with fundamental realities and there's a sense in which there, there's just a natural touching at that point. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a, a philosophy, you know, science, science is kind of philosophy done by other means sort of thing yeah. and vice versa. And, and the, the kinds of questions that were, it, it, yeah, and, and that, that's why, like, when you have someone like, you may have seen this, but, you know, Stephen Hawking saying something like philosophy is dead, um, and then going on and talking about all this philosophy, and you think, <laughs> I mean, you just can't escape it. I think, and, 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 but I think part of that is because people don't understand philosophy, what it is. But I also think there's a lack of understanding, and this is really strange. I, I don't, for some, for for actual practicing scientists, sometimes it's just so much, like, there's so much to know that you never have time to think about why. Like, what's going on? What are right. the method? Like, you just kind of, you know, I mean, this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to, to Kuhn and... Yes, but, but scientific revolutions. But yeah. there's certainly this kind of notion where you just kind of catch the method in science, but you don't 
really think much about how to do it and what, why are you doing it? It was one of the, one of the weird things for me. And I think this is one of a coming into philosophy from a science background. It took me quite a while to figure out, like I had all these methodological questions. Okay. Like why, why would you take that as authoritative? You know, it's like, well, you know, what does knowledge mean? And it turns out that they're using intuitions about what we would say. Well, would you say that you, you know, if you accidentally see a clock at the right time and it happens to be, do you know that it's really the right time? You know, I'm thinking, well, that's just about what we're, so there's like this data and that's just one small example, but there's this methodology that I'm wondering, I'm wondering, why are we using that as data? And why are we using that? And it, but that I think that was really, really helpful for me to have those questions. And then to start seeing, okay, I I get what they're doing. And then it turns out that the kinds of things they're doing, it's, this is just how people learn things. And so, you know, epistemology, the study of knowledge, and you start... But coming at it from an outsider was so helpful. It was baffling at first, though. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, of course, that's kind of the experience that anyone has with a new, you know, uh, body of knowledge. Yeah, that's uh, right. But, uh, but one of the things, too, I think you, you noted uh, that it's, it's a kind of uh, skilled, uh, you know, practice when we think about science. I, I've heard it described... Uh, you know, my, I think it's Michael Pagliani, Pagliani, yeah. Pagliani talks about, uh, you know, science is actually kind of a craft. It's, uh, we, we, it's, it's not just, um, you know, uh, well, I don't think it's what some people would suppose. In other words, you develop certain heuristics, you develop certain abilities to kind of, and then there's even hunches that you, you, you have a sense that this is probably where it's we, we should go in our, in our thinking and our, in our study. Um, so it's not this, um, abstract, right. disembodied thing right. that I think a lot of folks assume it is. You know, we had an earlier conversation in which, um, as mentioned, John Milbank has argued that the separate, the creation of science as the means of knowledge about the natural world, separating it from natural philosophy, uh, has set back our understanding of the natural world by 300 years. Hmm. Um, And I I think that there's a lot there, you know. I mean, uh, you know, science is fundamentally an epistemological enterprise. You know, it it deals, it it is a methodology for obtaining knowledge about the physical universe. Okay, great. That's what it is. Right. Um, But as soon as you start talking about physics, you're just a half a step away from metaphysics, questions of of the ultimate nature of reality. You know, there, there are so many direct connections between what scientists do, which we think of as having to do with the concrete, the physical world, the, you know, matter and energy and all that, and what philosophers do, which is just, thinking about stuff that's not really related to the physical world we've got this fact value distinction coming out again we've got we got that dichotomy in our minds and it it doesn't if once you start probing it it doesn't make any sense at all yeah that's and i i think the um and chris like you were saying like the a lot of the philosophers and scientists you know that are, are going back and forth. And I think that would be, you know, if you look at, 
you know, the famous, there's a debate between Einstein and Niels Bohr about the nature of quantum mechanics. And it, you, know, you think, okay, wow, that's, uh, it was all philosophical. Like nature shouldn't be that way. Yeah, sure. God doesn't dice with the universe. Yeah. Right, so it's right. like, this was a very important debate that's deciding what direction physics ought to take. Mm-hmm. And they were both very self-aware about the philosophical underpinnings that they were, you know, they, they knew that they were doing philosophy and they knew they were doing physics. And it, it was, and I think they're one of the, la- you know, after, certainly once we get to, you know, after the the thirties, you know, after quantum mechanics kind of gets dialed in a little bit, um, you know, you have world war two and then everything is very much, this is where logical positivism gets a good, nice, you know, Vienna circle gets a good foothold um, because it's very practical. Like, what can we do with this? Well, yeah. you can win a war with it, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And then next right. thing you know, you have all these, um, you know, Lee Smolin, this, this, he's a string theorist. He, he, he says there's, there, there were visionaries and then virtuosos, like the mathematical virtuosos and the, and they split where they kind of were, weren't split or they were talking. And then, and there needs to be this, you know, this reconnection going back to the two cultures again, because it's hurting both. You know, the people who are doing philosophy, if they don't really understand what some of the answers or current answers are for physics, you're going to be out of touch and vice versa. You're not going to do good, philo- do, do, do good physics unless you're just like, hey, I don't need that for doing an experiment on my workbench. Okay, so, fair enough. There are certain things where it's like, just shut up and calculate. You know, that's the kind of thing. I don't, right. But that's not, but, but that's not directing physics yeah. in the sense of, hey, should we go with string theory or are we barking up the wrong tree and is the scientific method wrong? Yeah, this, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, sort of the grunt work is just sort of filling in the blanks when it comes to a larger architecture of thought. So, you know, a lot of guys, gals out there who are pursuing their studies are are just kind of doing the clerk work (laughs) when it comes to uh, whatever the new uh, endeavor is. Now, do you sense that things are coming back together again? So like when you talked about Einstein and Bohr, you you know, sometimes people, you know, will pull, uh, a, a statement out of the hat when it comes to say Einstein about God or whatever like that. Now, anybody who knows Einstein knows he's, you know, really more in, uh, in the spirit of Spinoza <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when right. he says that kind of stuff. He's not, he's not endorsing biblical religion. Um, right. But at least those guys were maybe the last days of sort of mainstream classical education. You know, these were guys who uh, we're familiar with the trivium and the quadrivium and, and maybe some of the, now they were moving away from some things, but they still had those, you right. know, sort of the, right. those disciplines, you know, kind of drilled into them, uh, right. in Germany or, you know, whatever. Uh, what do you think? Are, are, is there any hope for bringing things back together? And, and it, would it be through the old approach or a new approach? Now, obviously you're speaking as a, as a professor at a, at a, a school that advocates classical education. <laughs> yeah. But well, Chris, thoughts? I'm glad you asked that. I was, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, 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 looking at the, the broader culture, I do think that there's, 
in academia, there's a growing sense that the siloing of the disciplines is needs to be fixed. You know, obviously there's a necessity to like focusing on something because there's so much to learn, but then there's also, you need to have the, the mixture because the, they're, they're relevant. And so I do think that there's a growing sense of, and I see this particularly in Christian or religious organizations or people of religion, like science and religion, you know, kind of bringing those two together. And that's kind of this, at least one manifestation of philosophy and, you know, the, the STEM and the humanities coming together. And I think people are becoming more self-aware academia in some, some circle is becoming more self-aware of this need. And so I think in some cases there are, there are these different um, organizations and programs that are actually, that's what they're funding when it comes to research show us how the, you know, science and the humanities connect and they're funding that kind of, of research. But I tell you what, we have a long way to go. So there's some hope, but it's like, you know, I, I, and I think about just where, where students are coming from generally and where the, I mean, we, we just don't even have a scientific literacy. Well, it's not even just a scientific literacy because that makes it sound like if you just took some science courses and learned some terminology that would fix it. That's part of it. But like if I, so here's, here's one problem, one manifestation of the problem, one instance of it. And it doesn't even sound like a problem. I mentioned general relativity and quantum mechanics and I say, all right, the two, that's it. Conversation's done. But there's, you don't need to know, first of all, those are like the two biggest theories in there. That's what everyone's talking about whenever they talk about physics. It's one of those two related, you know, the, the telescopes, the particle colliders, whatever. And, but we tend to think that once you say something like general relativity, you're, you're in this world that is so rarefied. I mean, it's just, but it's not, it's like, you don't need to understand hardly any of, or any of the math in order to understand kind of like what the point of it is. Just like you don't need to understand any of the math to know that, oh, wow, the uh, Copernic, I know what Copernicanism is. I know what the Ptolemaic view is. You don't need to do the math to know, to understand at least some of the, what the point is. Yeah. And that's one of those things where I think we're right now, we have to fix that. And I think part of it is just, we don't give a big picture of things. We're always, you know, whenever we do math or science, it's like this problem or this topic. And it's like, you can't just do that. Like you can't take a chemistry class and go, okay, guys, what is, what's the difference between chemistry and physics? And you're like, I have no idea. And it's like, well, here's what chemistry is. It's basically the interchange of electrons between atoms. That's it. It's just a chem. When someone talks about chemistry, it's just electron. So everything kind of, like, it gives you kind of a big picture, like, 
so, and you have to know, to understand what chemistry is, you know, that there are these electrons, then, you know, well, I got to know what an atom is. And then you kind of know what a nucleus is. Then you know that those are made of protons and neutrons and those are made of quarks. I mean, just like some of the basic, 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 basic things. Sorry, I'm ranting. I was just, it's one of those things where I just think it's, it's, it's unnecessarily an easy fix. And it's so, and the stakes are so high. You know, it's worth noting, and it's something people seem completely unaware of. Einstein actually wrote a book explaining relativity to high school students. And he used illustrations like trains and things like that, where it's just very, very simple to get what he's saying. And yet nobody seems to be aware that he even did that, and nobody, to the best of my knowledge, I've never run into anybody who's ever actually tried to use it to explain it. But that's what Einstein said. Well, well, I didn't know it was to high school. I knew it was popular. I didn't know it was even to just high school. So that's even, yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's fascinating. So he was a master of metaphor then. <clears throat> he was taking, uh, you know, things that people don't have direct experience with and relating them to things that they do and saying there's, a, there's some resemblance here, guys. <laughs> you can yeah. see this and you can sort of infer certain things about the thing you can't see, which of course is what, um, you know, analogical language, you know, in theology is, is all about too. Uh, you know, we're not describing God directly, like we've got him under a microscope or something, you know, it's like this or like that, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, so maybe, maybe there's something to be said just on the other side of this for the education of scientists, uh, in the humanities so that they can relate what they know to, to a broader audience, uh, as well. Um, like oh, absolutely. I, think it, I, 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 the, 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 the benefits go both ways. Just, I mean, Einstein's an example. Like if he, he wouldn't, he and Bohr couldn't have done what they did without having that philosophical background. And now, and this is one of the diagnoses of kind of the stagnation in physics. I mean, part of the stagnation is because physics is hard and we're bumping up against, money and all of this guy. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, but I think part of it too, is just, there aren't a lot of those visionaries. Yeah. But I think more are starting to come in, but that's, and that's actually a big um, debate on the front lines of physics is for example, whether beauty should be used as a guide to truth. And then now yeah. you're talking about the methodology of physics and whatnot. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I was... I no, no, it's, it's really right along the line. I was, you know, you know, wanting to get in, you know, to sort of explore uh, how these two, these two worlds really are not two worlds, but maybe just two approaches to the same world or sort of a... a, a we're, what we're talking about is the study of reality, you know, what is real. And um, at a gut level, everybody sort of in the street would say, well, physical things are real. And then, you know, you get particle physicists who say, well, are, are you even sure you know what that means? <laughs> it right. raises all, a, a range of questions, you know, right. in the mind. And, and you get back to, you know, Platonism, which is what's ultimate re ultimately real are the forms, you know, out of which everything else in some sense is, a, you know, is some manifestation of them, a uh, reflection of them, whatever. And then you get into even stuff that's going on today. And I'd like your thoughts on this because I'm, I'm a real not, you know, I'm, I'm a dilettante. I don't know much about these things, but like when I hear about fractals, 
which apparently is a fairly recent development within mathematics, sort of sort of kind of demonstrating the fractal character of the universe, uh, like a tree in the sense is fractal. You know, you've got the larger structure, then it's mirrored in the branches, then mirrored in the leaves, and it's kind of and you see that all over the place, and you get you know people who are waxing grandioloquent about you know uh, chaos theory and stuff like that, <laughs> you yeah. know, and and. and my understanding of chaos theory is that it might be the most inappropriately named thing ever, you know, <laughs> what they're trying to demonstrate through chaos theory is that, it, that it's not as chaotic as you think there's, there is a structure. Well, it's, it has very deterministic. Yeah. It's just very sensitive. Yeah. But these are all things that of course, as a, as a guy on the street, I see these things, I hear about these things. My mind immediately goes to, uh, you know, ultimate reality because of my background in theology and philosophy. But uh, I have lots of fun talking to scientists. I mean, I've got friends who are world-class scientists. You know, I've got a friend who works at the CERN uh, in, you know, Switzerland, you know, on the particle wow. accelerator, and he teaches physics in Connecticut at UConn. And I've got another friend down in Huntsville, Alabama, who actually is like a space telescope guy, you know, and he, mm. uh, and I stay at his house sometimes. And when I get to, into conversations with these guys, it does take us long to get to some places where we're in a complete agreement. Isn't that amazing? I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> that kind right. of stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. So the wonder, the wonder element too, to all of this, you know, basically philosophy is a child of wonder, the sciences as well, you know, it's like, wow, what is going on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's and that's kind of the this is one of the difficulties of the class that 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 I teach. One of the main class, the the senior level class is that it's hard to categorize. Am I teaching math? Is it physics? Is it philosophy? You know, we re so, for example, we read, you know, we, we read Nagel's Mind and Cosmos in this course. And, you know, we talk about aesthetics and we talk about. And, and ultimately, the whole point is we're looking at physics and philosophy and Platonism and all that. But it ends up becoming this notion of, particularly as you start seeing how reason works and the kinds of things that, you know, it's not just a, an algorithm. You know, you, we're using inference to the best explanation and values come in not, and, and, and they can't help but. Um, and that's that actually that's. Einstein knew that and that shaped, you know, you think about beauty and how that directs someone, but you can't, you know, it's not an accident that Plato and the Pythagoreans, he got the quadrivium from the Pythagoreans includes this notion of harmony and music. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's such a, and this is one of the things we, I, I think sometimes we, we don't understand how important music is. You know, I think, I think so like, I think some communities, I think our community, you know, our, our school is doing this. We've, we've emphasizing music. And I think that in a, in a, in a way that's important, but I think we still have a long ways to go because it's something even more substantive about music. That's really part of this. I, I don't even know how to get at, you know, if I were a poet, I could probably explain it, you know, or at least express <laughs> something of it. But that notion of that meaning, but then you start thinking about going back to what you were talking about with the fact value. You really don't have values unless you have valuers. You know, it's not like if, if you just have like a, you know, a 
a, a, a pile of sand. There's no values there. It is like, is that good? Is that bad? Well, sand doesn't, just like it doesn't have love, it doesn't have any values at all. And so you need a valuer. All of a sudden, you're like very quickly to have any meaning or value, you have to have some sort of person. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, and this is, this is one of the things that's like, and, and you, it, you, you guys know this better than I do, but ultimate reality is basically this three persons loving one another. You know I mean? That sounds gushy and mushy and all that. And like, no, that's not what I mean, but it, like, it really is this yeah. personhood meaning are in these relationships between persons. And that's reflected in the way, you know, we're connected to the church, the church, our church, the way we're connected to Jesus and God. I mean, like, the, why we were built, we're built to have this relationship. So it, this fact value, I mean, I get how there's, I can make a distinction between facts and value, but you've, it's all about ultimate meaning and value. And that all comes down to ultimate reality, which is persons. So, yeah, yeah, well, yeah I think it's important to remember that the fact value distinction is artificial. I mean, it it has shaped the way the modern world thinks, but that doesn't mean it bears any real resemblance to reality. You know, and that and I think that that's that's what you're getting at. Uh, before we move on, I want to go back to music for a second. Um, mm, yeah. String theory, as I understand it, the way string theory developed is somebody found an equation somewhere in an old manuscript and they had no idea what it was or what it was for. And then they suddenly discovered it applied to all kinds of areas of physics. But they still didn't know how this guy three or 400 years ago came up with it. They then discovered that it was the mathematical description of the vibrations of a string, like on a violin. And then they decided, well, okay, maybe that's why it's called string theory. Maybe the mathematics of a vibrating string is fundamental to the way the universe works. Now, I realize string theory has got its problems uh, from what I'm told by physicists, but it's another example of the way music just sort of ties into oh, that really fundamental of, things about reality. Yeah, that one of the things that Pythagoras said. Yeah, yeah and, and that's it. And that's what I, I mean, that's one of the things I usually, sometimes I'll just call my class strings to strings because you have this, you know, when we're talking about the, um, the origin of the liberal arts and all of that, you know, the Pythagoreans, they, the reason they have this, they think all is number is because legend says that they looked at the interval, you know, musical intervals of a string right. and noticed that you can, Hey, that's actually remarkably user-friendly. You know, we can assign numbers to those whole numbers to those. And, um, you know, so it's all it, it kind of, according to the legend, it just started all from this understanding of vibrating strings. Imagine what they would think now coming back, and yeah. you and and now the one of the top contenders for a theory of everything is all the particles and everything are just little versions. This is cosmic symphony of strings. Yeah. Now we're back to the music of the spheres. Yeah. And it's like, and, and, and then, so people will, and people will kind of give Kepler a hard time for thinking, oh, well, using the Pythagorean solids or coming up with the music of the spheres and thinking, well, see, he, he, he was too into beauty and beauty led him astray. It's like, actually, I mean, the specifics might be wrong, but the notion or the idea 
is remarkably insightful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's similarly with Plato, you know, it's like we, right. we're not studying Plato because we think that everything is made, you know, like we believe everything he said, but he was remarkably insightful. Right. Right. Now you mentioned earlier, some positive developments, uh, you know, uh, an institution that comes to mind is the Templeton Foundation, who, you know, with the Templeton Prize, and, and right. there's a, an effort uh, on their part to bring these two worlds together. Am I correct remembering that you just got a grant from those guys? Well, it's there, there's two there's two um, granting bodies for them. There's the Temple John Templeton Foundation, and then the Templeton Religion Trust, but they're both from the same. Templeton. So there's, there is over there. So obviously, yes, there, there's an overlap. Officially it's from the Templeton religion trust. Um, but that is kind of, you know, part of that. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what, uh, you're going to be working on? No, I, I would, I would love to. I, I, anytime I can talk about myself is my favorite topic. This is, <laughs> here's what I'm working on. <laughs> well, that's all about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> The, the grant is, uh, is this three-year, three-year project, and I'll be looking at how physicists use beauty as a guide to truth and what they come up with. And, 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 that, that, and it's mostly contemporary physics. I'll obviously have to look at you know, 19th century, but then particularly talking about 20th century and current like quantum field theory and whatnot, and how the the specific ways that is, you know, it can't be just. It's not just well, they use beauty. Well, what do you mean by that? So, what are when when physicists say they use beauty, what do they mean? Well, sometimes they mean symmetry. Sometimes they mean harmony. Yeah. Sometimes they mean simplicity. And so, looking at that, and then looking at the mathematical aspects, because a lot of it, like when we say symmetry, we think of you know spatial geometrical symmetry, which is the per, which is great, but theirs is much more abstract and it's kind of hidden in the the equations. And so you have to look at the mathematics. So all of that is just going to be me fleshing out and researching. So, because that's really on the front line, like I said, on the front lines of physics, that's one of the biggest debates is should beauty be used? You know, Glenn, you talk about that. You, you, you were right. You know, Physicists say there's some physicists say there's problems with string theory because you can't test it. And so you're having to all you're just having to use these abstract virtues to say. And one of the abstract virtues is, hey, it's beautiful. Well, okay, well, what does that? I I had a roommate who was a high power physicist in at Michigan State. Uh, he was taking doctoral mm-hmm. level physics courses, math courses as an undergrad. Okay, you know that that kind of level, and he he used to talk about the importance of elegance in the math. Yeah, and is that is that the same related concept? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, elegance. So, like, what do they mean by and that? So, beauty is kind of this catch-all sometimes, but elegance is a type of well. What do you mean by elegance? And that's a really hard. It's hard to this is tricky. I mean, it's, I think just aesthetics in general is a very, a lot more difficult subject than we tend to make it. You know, we, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness. I think the beauty part is really, we're halfway decent on truth and goodness 
but I think beauty is one that's really uh, something we need to do, do more work on. And I think partly that's just, it's interesting and it's fun. But yeah, elegance is one of those. Well, this brings up a book I, I read years ago, at least in my, in my mind, uh, uh, The End of Science by John Horgan. Are you familiar with that book? Yes. So, you know, with that book, you know, here's a guy who was, a, who was a, an editor, science editor at Scientific America, I think it was. And he was frustrated because he thought science was leaving, uh, you know, uh, its own methods behind and becoming kind of postmodern in, a, in its approach. Right. But he, al right. he also said, you know, if I recall correctly, we're losing an ability to measure things so that we can, you know, demonstrate our theories because we're dealing with things that are at the extreme limits of uh, mm -hmm. our tools. And, you know, we're only going right. to be able to, right. to progress scientifically as our tools become more refined and able to discern right. things that we can't discern just with our physical senses. Um, and it, that struck me as being... One of those things where, yeah, I, I think that's right, but at the same time, um, you know, for one thing, you know, we we were pretty creative at developing tools for measuring things. You know, like we can actually measure gravity waves now. You know, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but oh, at the yeah. same time, I mean, theoretically, yes. I mean, there's got to be a limit. I mean, <laughs> there's got to be a point at which you know we we just can't see farther. Uh, we can't. We, it may just come down to we don't have the money. You know, it's just, you think about like right, the particle right. accelerator, you know, that's a pretty expensive thing to develop. <laughs> and so, yeah. but is, does that mean that we are falling into this just sort of like world of uh, kind of crazy theorizing or do we actually have an ability to, to make good judgments about things that are beyond our ability to measure? And maybe aesthetics is the way to that right yeah and, and and well that that is the question that's the debate the debate is you know that you 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 set it up just perfectly described it perfectly we don't currently have the ability to get data beyond you know we're kind of limited there so we don't have any new observations really i mean we do but and so you have to progress some other way well maybe beauty's that way because it's worked in the past for things but then people say, well, look, look at Kepler. It didn't work there, but it worked. So the debate now is whether or not that's legitimate. Someone like Einstein would be like, absolutely. Like, he'd rather, you know, he, that's why he was so successful. And some people think, yeah, Einstein ruined us. Oh, you know, like he gave us this desire. He said he, he, he was able to do this. And now we think we can all do it. I mean, even Einstein, they say, couldn't do it after Einstein, yeah. you know, like when he tried to have later in his life, he couldn't, he, Einstein was no Einstein, <laughs> you know? And so it's, and so there, so that I, you, you hit you, that's the sweet spot right there. What, what's the answer yeah. to that? And that's what I'm so, working on. Yeah. Mitch, a couple of thoughts that occur to me and I've never really talked about these or tried to express them before, but I think there's a... This is a safe space, so you can, yeah. You, you. Um, for, first of all, with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, um, you know, people act as if that's a limitation on God. Even God himself can't know that. You know, can't know both where something is and where it's going. And I, I think the response to that, and actually to some of the points you brought up earlier, 
is that the nature of God's knowledge is not it is different. It is a totally different form of knowledge than what we do, and thus there are no limits on it that are the limits on the kind of knowledge we have. I mean, I, I think that that's a, a, a basic theological point. I think, by the way, it also uh, helps answer the question, how can you listen to everybody's prayers at once um, that you raised earlier? But I think yeah. this may also be connected to something else, and that's the question of whether not just our tools, but our mathematics and our way of, of understanding things can even apply at the subatomic level. When we're dealing with, with these levels of quantum stuff that seems so utterly bizarre to us, it strikes me that it's at least a possibility that our minds are not structured in a way that will actually give us uh, the kind of understanding of that that we can in the experiential world we live in you know, day by day. And that right. may apply right. at the other end as well to the weirdnesses we're seeing through um, uh, through the space telescopes. Uh, absolutely, I, I think, that, and I think that's a concern. I mean, even I think physicists think this too. You know, I mean, it could be just that we're getting to. I mean, not necessarily that we're getting to the limits, but there are just things that we're our cognitive faculties and the way we're made and hardwired and the way we know is just ill-suited for understanding, you know, what actually is going on yeah. ultimately. I, and, and there's a, you know, there's a view that just, you know, it's just, it's called it, and you, I'm sure you know about it, like instrumentalism where it's just kind of this, the math is an instrument to describe the observables and that, but it's not really telling us the truth about what's going on. And that was a big debate between Einstein and Bohr. You know, Bohr is like, there is no quantum world. You know, Einstein's like, come on, man. There's a, <laughs> that means that quantum mechanics is wrong. So, so I think, yeah, I, that is that we should always have that possibility that we're just ultimately, we just can't, in this form, cognitively grasp. Yeah. This is probably a good place to wrap stuff. it up because we are getting to the time limit here. But uh, anyway, so basically uh, we've come to this point where we're saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. <laughs> Which, I think we could all sign there. I'm glad we got that settled. <laughs> well, Mitch, is there anything that you want to – uh, t say about, you know, how people can follow your work. I mean, particularly the, the work you're doing now on this question of, you know, you know, uh, the relationship between aesthetics and scientific, uh, research. It, it, will there be like a blog that you keep? Uh, is there anything like that? Yeah. Well, right, right now, I, I, nothing like a, a blog. There'll be, um, eventually this should become a book. I mean, that's one of the, the things that I, that, that's part of the project is a book manuscript that comes out of it. And then in the meantime, there'll be um, journal articles and talks that, that I'll be giving. And, and I've talked about some of this stuff they are on given talks that are, that are online, you know, about the connection between science and religion and science and humanities and beauty and whatnot. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's what's coming in the future. Is there uh, some, do you have like an author website or anything? I do, I do have I do have um, a website, um, Uh It's it's not kept up, 
I joined the club. Mine isn't either. Yeah, mine isn't either. <laughs> anyway, well, why don't we just encourage folks to, to check out your books and to, you know, you just go on to, you know, Amazon or wherever and you can find Mitch's stuff. You know, it's readily available, some of the stuff he's written in the past. And then um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to maybe get you back on uh, when you've had a chance to make a little progress and maybe written some papers and stuff. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the uh, Theology Podcast. We're glad that uh, you've made it to the end of the show. And as your reward, you get to hear about Patreon. <laughs> so we have bills, as everyone does. And uh, in order to pay uh, to have this show uh, produced and, and posted, we've got uh, you know different people we have to pay. And when you help us out at Patreon, uh, it helps us to make sure that those people get paid. And I know they appreciate it. <laughs> but anyway, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.